Live your way in the powerful Isuzu D-Max. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. At Optus Stadium, it's a beautiful winter's day in Perth. Again, got shadows being cast across the lawn towards the Camfield Hotel. We are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Ute. You can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. And we've got a lot for you on the show today. We're going to talk a bit of cricket. We're going to talk a bit of soccer. We're going to talk a bit of Lance Franklin off the top. We are going to touch base, as always, with Josh Kennedy and Paul Hazelby on a Tuesday. And we're going to have good chats with them today because both the WA teams won at the weekend. Overnight, of course, England won the fifth test by 49 runs at the Ashes. They defeat, They dismissed Australia for 334. It was a good run chase by the Aussies, but runs on the board always count for plenty late in test matches. I think there is a serious post-mortem to be done on this test series by Australia. We won the World Test Championship. We won the first two tests of this series. We reclaimed the urn. But I think if we're honest, the moral victory here at the end of the series belonged to England. In the last three tests of the series, they were better and tougher for longer than us. And if there was a moral victory to be had in that fifth test at the Oval, and I think there was, the victory was had by England and not by us. England were bolder at selection. They introduced Chris Wokes and Mark Wood to their team midway through the series, and those two bowlers basically changed the course of the series, and we weren't very bold at all. David Warner continues to play. Now, David Warner wasn't the reason we lost the fifth test. He scored a good 60 in the second dig, but if you give a bloke 31 goes at it, Sooner or later, he's going to make a few. He doesn't make enough. He doesn't make them often enough. And he continues to play. And our timid selectors continue to play him. What do you think? We will be talking to Bryce McGain later on the show to get his thoughts on the Ashes series. You can have your say on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. Or you can call us on the open line on 13 12 55. In footy... Lance Franklin has retired, effective immediately after tearing his calf muscle in Sydney's narrow win against Essendon at the weekend. He kicked 1,066 goals in 354 games, 486 goals in 172 games for Sydney, 580 goals in 182 games for Hawthorne. He is the last player to kick 100 goals in a season. He's 113 in 2008 which paved the way for Hawthorne's young team under Alistair Clarkson to win an unexpected flag, toppling the favourites Geelong. Unless something changes dramatically, he's also likely to be the last player to top the 1,000 goal mark. He sits fourth on the all-time list between Lockett, Coventry and Dunstall, having overtaken Doug Wade this year. The men ahead of him played in a different time before press defences and zone defences clogged forward lines and slowed the scoring down in our great game. In WA terms, I think he sits only behind Polly Farmer in the pantheon of great West Australian champions. You can have your say on that on the temperate bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. But in the meantime, thanks to Isuzu Utes, 
and you can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. Here are my favourite Franklin performances to four-wheel drive you to work this morning. One, the elimination final versus Adelaide at Dockland Stadium 2007. Franklin, at the age of 20, kicked 7-2, including the match winner, to seal a three-point win for Clarkson's Young Hawks against the Crows. The last goal from out on the 50-metre line is followed by him turning to the crowd and embracing the adulation and the spotlight. It is the biggest early AFL indication that this kid loved the big time and thrived in the big moments. He kicked 73 goals for the season. To put that in perspective, he was at the time a year older than Fremantle's young star Jai Amis is now. Point two, round or game two, should I say, round 10, 2012. Franklin kicks 13 goals against North Melbourne in Launceston. Nathan Grimer, who had had just returned to the North Melbourne team after serious injury, was the fourth opponent on Franklin that day. He remembers after Franklin kicked his 12th goal, the Hawthorne runner coming out to them and saying there was less than a minute left. Franklin turned to Grimer and said there was still time for one more. He proceeded to kick goal number 13. It prompted Anthony Hudson's now famous call, 13, 13. It was utter dominance, a superstar doing whatever he wanted to do. Game three, round 13, 2014, versus Port Adelaide at the SCG. It was Franklin's first year at the Swans. He had signed a mammoth nine-year, $10 million contract. The focus of the football world was on him. Port Adelaide had come with a rush at the Swans in the final term and frankly simply stepped up to the plate and won the game for Sydney. He kicked three goals from outside of the 50-metre arc to finish the game with 5-4, along with seven inside 50s. It was further evidence that Franklin would continue to be a big moment money man after shifting to Sydney from the Hawks. And the last one, round one, 2018. Franklin kicked 8-1 at Optus Stadium against West Coast. It was the first ever AFL game at Perth's shiny new stadium. Franklin was so good, he didn't actually ruin the occasion for the locals, even though Sydney won... He helped make the occasion special. The Eagles made the mistake of leaving a defender, often the very talented Tom Barris, isolated one-on-one inside attacking 50 on Franklin, and the big bloke was unstoppable. He loved our new stadium. He kicked six on Griffin Logue against Fremantle in 2021 and three against Dockers skipper Alex Pearce just a couple of weeks ago. Where does Buddy Franklin sit in the pantheon of great West Australian players. What are your favourite Buddy Franklin moments? You can have your say on the Temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736 or you can call us on the open line on 13 12 55. Meanwhile, our Matildas are through to the elimination rounds of the Women's World Cup after a sparkling 4-0 demolition of Canada in Melbourne last night. We have a week now to prepare for our round 16 or round of 16 elimination match. After the break, we will talk to the West Australian soccer writer Ben Smith for his take on the game and the World Cup so far and what the chances are of Sam Kerr playing in the elimination matches. She certainly didn't look 
great on the bench last night. Still limping slightly, I think, if anything. We'll be back after the break. your own way in the seventh seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Live your own way in the seventh seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Down the right side to Lacasse. And there's a whistle just as Lacasse was starting to motor up. They have stopped their advantage, and there's going to be a check for a penalty. And it's going to be a penalty <laughs> for the Matildas. Melbourne waits on its feet. Steph Catley in her hometown. Left foot, it's in. The Matildas are on their way to the round of 16. Steph Catley. Yes, welcome back to the Toolkit Depot studio. Don't forget to shop winter at TKD. That was Steph Catley, of course, putting the Matildas 4-0 in front and absolutely, definitely and certainly into the round of 16 at the Women's World Cup. To talk about their 4-0 demolition of Canada last night, we have the West Australians' Ben Smith on the line. Ben, welcome. Thanks, Duff. Always a pleasure. What did you make of it, mate? They saved the best one to last. It was. I think it's. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that was one of the greatest World Cup wins by an Australian uh, uh, soccer team, male or female. That was. It was magnificent, and it was a complete, you know, about face from the team because you know the way they played last night. It was like watching two different teams. If you compare the way they played against Canada and Nigeria, where they looked cautious and not sure of themselves and, you know, over-reliant on long, hopeful balls into the box. Last night, they played with a clarity and a and a decisiveness which hadn't been evident at this tournament so far. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a great performance, back to the wall. I don't think anyone would have predicted they would have beaten Canada, the Olympic champions, 4-0 heading into that game. It was... Uh, it was, it was one of the all-time great performances, and it happened in our own backyard in front of our home crowd. It was just a wonderful night, which will live long in the memory. So what changed from their previous two matches? They were nervous against Ireland. They were sloppy against um, Nigeria. Was it mainly attitudinal, do you think? I think there was a bit of... I definitely think against Ireland on the opening night, I think there were a bit of nerves as... You know, as you come to expect uh, from the opening game of the World Cup, you know, it's, it's never an easy game. And I think Nigeria, but like you said, they were sloppy, uh, especially defensively. You know, they gave up a lot. And, um, you yeah, and Nigeria were clinical and they, you know, made them pay. Uh, I think in terms of just, they just kept the ball better last night. They weren't lofting high long balls into a box uh, at every given opportunity. Uh, they tried to keep the ball on the floor. And it and it worked for them. They were able to hit the feet of you know of Caitlin Ford and Steph Catley, who were fantastic down the left hand side. But you know they play together at club level for Arsenal, and you know you can tell that the uh, you know the connection they have it was so evident last night. And I th- you know Steph Catley was able to roam forward a bit more because the ball was on the floor a bit more because she was getting it to feet, uh, and I thought that really helped the Matildas. Um, 
they were, yeah, they just played, like, there was an urgency to, you know, the way they threw themselves into tackles and there was a clarity to the way they played, which they hadn't really shown in the previous two games. And I think attitudinal, yeah, there was probably a bit of a, um, you know, a bit of a shift. It went from maybe scared, being scared to make mistakes in the first two games to we need to try and win this game. Um which, you know, it's not always an easy uh, you know, shift, shift to make, but they, they pulled it off and, you know, I thought they played without fear last night, which was which was really interesting after the, after the opening two games where I, I don't think they were at their most confident. You mentioned Caitlin Ford. Her runs down that left side really disrupted the Canadian defence, didn't they? And probably created a lot of opportunities for, for other players. Hayley Razzo, of course, cashed in on that with two goals. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Caitlin Ford, over the last nine months, she's been shifted into a central role for the Matildas, you know, often playing behind Sam Kerr. And it, I actually think it's been, she's been fantastic in that role when she has played off, off Kerr and, you know, she can combine with Sam Kerr, who she's got a very good partnership with uh, in the final third. And I think without Kerr in the lineup at the moment, the fact that, you know, she Ford was leading the line, but it's not. She wasn't playing a natural game, uh, and so I think you know credit to Tony Gustafsson, you know who you know I did slam after the Nigeria result. I didn't think he he managed that game well, but he made a big call to to move forward to the left, and it worked. It paid dividends. It was the best she's played this this, this tournament, um, and you know the fact she just had that familiarity with Catley, that kind of you know that understanding they have they have on the field was palpable and Canada just couldn't live with it and you know, Hayley Razzo on the right wing was, you know, that first half was probably the best football I've seen her play for, for the national team and um, yeah, there were just so many players who stepped up last Ellie Carpenter you know, had her best game of the tournament by far. I thought Mary Fowler who obviously missed the Nigeria game through a concussion, she was just, you know, she, she was bouncing around she was energetic, she was everything the Matildas needed her to be and uh, got a very deserved goal as well. She um, she really transformed that side, particularly just through the middle, just getting between enemy lines, you know, getting the ball, kind of linking up. It was, yeah, just an all-around great performance from the Matildas. Yeah, she's, she has that great touch with her feet, doesn't she, Fowler? And she often sends them north when she's really heading south. And... Uh... Uh, that that creates space and time for teammates around her, and some of our more dangerous attacks were were off the back of her deception and her ability to to send them one way and then go the other way. I thought she was terrific. She was, and she's only twenty years old, Duff. She mm. is so young, and just yeah, she's just so you know precociously talented, and you know the big jumps she made in her game. She's her movement. You know, off the ball has really come on leaps and bounds in the last, you know, two or, two or so years. Um, she's gone from being a, an exciting young player with a lot of talent to someone who is now making tangible difference to the Matildas. And, and like I said, at just 20 years old, you know, the sky's the limit for her. And I thought against Ireland on the, in the opening game, she was a bit nervy. She didn't quite, you know, impact the game as she would have liked, but... You know, with everything on the line against Canada, who, you know, they're the reigning Olympic champions. They're a very good team. With everything on the line against them, you know, I thought Fowler was fantastic. She, um, you know, she, from a defensive point of view as well, she pressed really well. She didn't give them much time on the ball. She sat she sat in when she needed to. But, you know, in terms of leading the line, um, yeah, I thought she was great. 
Fascinated by soccer's concussion protocols, Ben. Um, she was concussed the day before the, the Nigeria game. She plays in this one. What What are the actual rules in, in soccer? What, what happens if you get a concussion? How long do you have to sit out? I'm not sure there's a... I believe it may be four or five days. I know... So, for a bit of context, Avi, uh, Ivy Lewick uh, was also concussed uh, in the Matildas training on the same day as... Mary Fowler, and she actually failed the concussion protocols uh, for this game. So she was actually she wasn't available last night. Now, Avi Lewis probably wouldn't have played um, either. But I mean, either way. But yeah, um, I don't. I mean, I don't know the extent of what Mary Fowler's head knock is. Um, they get reevaluated between eighteen and seventy-two hours after the initial uh, head injury. Um, but yeah, I know FIFA does take concussion. You know, well, has these you know quite strict concussion guidelines uh, in play. Uh, but yeah, it is. Um, it is considering we're having this chat at AFL level after the uh, the Alia and uh, Lockie Jones incident on the uh, on the weekend. It is it's very stark contrast, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Alia <laughs> Alia was in La La Land, really. So I don't know yeah. how they. How that got through. Um, Katrina Gorry was really good, really busy around the middle, and pretty tough as well. Got a couple of uh, got a foot stomped on a couple of times and stayed out there. Yeah, there's not really another Australian player quite like Katrina Gorry, um, particularly from a midfield point of view. She is, uh, she, you know, male or female. I don't think Australia has a has a midfielder who can control games like her. Uh, I thought first half she was. You know, a bit. Um, she didn't get on the ball much. She wasn't able to influence the game in possession much. But defensively, you know, her and Kira Cooney crossed. They sat deep. They clogged up the passing lanes. They made it really tough for Canada to play through them. It, meant, it led to Canada kind of circulating the possession around the back a lot, but not actually being able to progress the ball and make inroads up the field. Uh, and I thought Gorry and uh, Cooney crossed from a defensive standpoint, first half were excellent. And in the second half, when Game opened up a bit. I thought that's where Gory really shone, and she was able to get on the ball a bit more. She was able to, you know, create a bit of time and space for herself to slow the pace down when she needed to, but also hit those quick, you know, transition balls to Caitlin Ford on the counter attack. Um, you know, I think she played a fantastic pass for Steph Catley, um, which uh, ended in a cross, which was begging to be tucked away quite early in that second half. And yeah, she was just a. Could, you know, she's hard as nails as well. She loves a tackle. You know, as technically gifted as she has, she, she's also, you know, she will get stuck in. She'll put her body on the line. Um, yeah, she's just, a, she's, it's so, it's just great to watch her. She's a phenomenally talented player. And I'm glad kind of Australia are getting a, a bit of a chance to kind of, to realise just how good she is. Yeah, absolutely. And she's very uh, technically gifted with those tackles too. She tends to get all ball when she goes in low and hard. And uh, uh, so she's not giving up fouls and, and, and that sort of thing. Hey, uh, the sobering uh, part of all this is it, it does give Sam Kerr another week to get that calf injury right. But just watching on the, her on the bench, Ben, I'm a bit pessimistic about how bad this calf injury is and how long it's going to be. I'm not seeing any signs that she's that close to playing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, people who were at the stadium yesterday um, were saying she wasn't warming up with the rest of the team. She had her boots on, but she wasn't going through the normal, uh, you know, the normal warm-ups as you'd expect. So, 
That's, I mean, it's gonna, she's already had the most talked about calf in Australian history. I think, you know, the next week is going to ramp up even more. And thankfully, you know, the Matilda's winning means, A, she will have, she does have that outside chance of appearing at this World Cup. And, you know, the next game will be on Monday. So she's got another week to prepare. You know, I think that would put her at around about, you know, two and a half weeks, I think, um, from the initial uh, injury. So, you know, there's a bit of hope there, but... You know, and a lot can happen in a week. Uh, but again, you know, it's it's really it's really tough to see her on the sidelines at the moment. Um, the flip side of it is the Matildas have proved that they can get it done without her, and that's that's a really important step this team needed to make. Yeah, I think there are two types of calf injuries. There's the minor one, which will put you sort of out for a couple of weeks, and then there's the major one. It's more like four to six weeks, and just. We're going to know, aren't we, by this time next week as to which one it is. And just, again, watching her on the sidelines, even a couple of times when she was walking, I detected still um, a, a bit of a limp there. And if you're still limping when you're walking um, after about two weeks, you suspect it might be the major one. So it may be a couple of more weeks. Hopefully we can get through a couple of more uh, of these elimination rounds, maybe into a quarter or semifinal and, and, and get her back. Who's our likely opponent in the round of 16, Ben? So we're going to play one of... So we're going to obviously having top group B, which I don't think anyone was even thinking about last night. I think we were just more focused on getting out of the group. But given Nigeria's draw with, uh, with the Irish, uh, it means Australia are now top of group B after the group stage. So we'll play the runner-up of group D. Uh, England are currently top of group D. Uh, and then you've got uh, Denmark and Haiti, who are playing uh, in Perth tonight. Uh, Denmark is second, they've won one game. Uh, China are third, they've won one game. Haiti yet to win. So Haiti are an outside chance, but they'd have to beat Denmark by a couple of goals in Perth tonight, which would be, you know, an incredible shock. Denmark, uh, you know, they're in the box seat to go through. Uh, they just need to beat Haiti and, you know, hope that, uh, well, I think even if China beat England, Denmark will probably go through on... Uh, we should go through our goal difference, uh, provided they, you know, score a couple against Haiti. Uh, but, yeah, it would most likely be, I'd say, one of Denmark or China. And I think, you know, having watched both teams this tournament, uh, you know, I, I don't fear either of those sides in the way that I'd fear, you know, Matilda's England. That's not to say that, you know, neither of those teams uh, will be easy because I think, you know... I. From a defensive point of view, China really impressed me against Denmark. And Denmark have players like Pinilla Harda, who is, you know, one of the best players in the world. And Katrine Kuhl, who was, you know, I think she was fantastic in midfield against China. Uh, but, yeah, I think Matilda's, you know, especially after coming off the back of that performance, I think they would feel very confident about beating, you know, whoever they have to in the round of 16. Uh, thankfully, I don't think it will, it will be England uh, because I think that might be a bit of a... That would be the banana skin, which I'm not sure they'd be able to to uh, to avoid. But yeah, I I think uh, against Denmark or China, I'm backing him in the shoulders at this point. Ben Smith from the West Australians really enjoyed reading your stuff today, Ben. Uh, you can catch up with that in the West today, and uh, look forward to talking to you more. Hopefully, for uh, two or three more games as the Matildas progress further through this tournament. No worries. Cheers, Duff. Ben Smith, you can catch up with his stuff in the West Australian. You can have your say on what he said on the show as well. 
on the Temper at Bedshed text line. That is 0487 736 736 or call on the open line 13 12 55. What do you think of the Matildas' chances in the World Cup now? What do you think of Sam Kerr's chances of getting back out there? As always, we are brought to you by Isuzu Utes. You can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max and we'll be back after the break. Some good assistance, but he's still going. But he's still no. going. He's unstoppable. <laughs> the great Lance Franklin and some Anthony Hudson magic calling him. Uh, what's your favourite Lance Franklin moment? You can have your say on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. Call us on the open line on 13 12 55. Text from Lisa from Ellenbrook. Morning, Duff and team. Totally agree with you, Duff. England was the better team. It's time for Cricket Australia to send David Warner on his way. Buddy Franklin, champion and a legend, and it's really sad we won't be seeing the Buds to play a farewell game at the MCG or on the SCG. Buddy was a player you always loved to watch. He had so much natural talent, always brought excitement to the game. His ball use... And kicking for goals was elite. But he will be sorely missed and wish him and family all the very best for the future. Thanks for that, Lisa. After the break, we'll come back. We'll talk to Dockers champion Paul Hazelby about Fremantle's great seven-point win over Geelong at Geelong on the weekend. The Dockers can certainly get it done down there. We're coming to you live from the Toolkit Depot studio. Don't forget to shop winter at TKD. Back with Hayes after the break. your own way in the seventh seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Live your own way in the seventh seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Ace with a courageous spoil. Dangerfield tries to charge through. Handballs to close. Handballs to Atkins. Dispossessed. Now Ace getting the handball out from Sarong. Siren sounds and one of the upsets of the season has just taken place. Fremantle for the second consecutive year beats Geelong at Geelong. The Dockers seven-point winners over the Cats down at GMHBA Stadium. And uh, Paul Hazelby, of course, is one half of the run home with Hayes and Mardo. You can hear that on weekdays on SENWA. Hayes, welcome to the show. Um, the Dockers can get it done in Geelong. Why? Well, they like playing on the ground. Perhaps it does suit them. But in hindsight, it wasn't that difficult to obviously select them. Their form hadn't been that great. But they beat them early in the year and they beat them last year down on that ground. So there are some times where you just match up really well against an opposition. They seem to have a bit too much speed for Geelong. And when they bring that sort of intensity and pressure around the ball, they can beat anyone. And 
I was a little bit, I was pretty happy with their performance against Sydney. I know many people were disappointed, but I saw some signs there. They took that through to Geelong and they got the points. And whilst it's been a disappointing season, if they can keep this going, get close to the eight, I think it does set them up for a pretty good year because they've learned some lessons this year and that's been important. So consistency has been the issue here, hasn't it? At times they played very well. Let's not forget they also beat Melbourne at the MCG. They've just had flat spots in games. They've had flat weeks as well. Is this just... Is this indicative of a team that's gotten younger with their list management or is it deeper than that? It's a little bit of that, but I think early on their game plan was thrown around a little bit. Like they did say that they didn't change too much, but there was a lot of question marks on certain things. So for them, they just need to really work out what is their identity. What are they going to take forward into next season and work on over the preseason? And um, We haven't spoken about Fremantle in terms of their clearance, contested possession and, and pressure and intensity too often this year so that's got to be the cornerstone but the last couple of weeks there's just been a few signs that they do want to be a bit more aggressive with the way they move the ball and I think Wagner's probably been the yardstick on that in the back half every time he gets the ball he just wants to take it forward I thought Jordan Clark was good as well in that position so you know there's a bit to like but it's going to take a little bit of time to improve on that system you can't just click your fingers sometimes and say we want to play a certain way it's got to happen over time and you've got to believe in it as well and I think if Longmuir can get some success in the back half of this season with four to go, then I think he can really take that through to next season and say that's the way we're going to play. Yeah, it's a good point, and Wagner does take the game on. Um, Alex Pierce gave a great response to criticism of his captaincy, didn't he? He was terrific on Tom Hawkins and Jeremy Cameron at times. Oh, he was enormous, and the scrutiny has been there. And, look, you get the sense that he probably hasn't been playing fully fit, but you do wonder whether he's going to be that sort of player that ever plays fully fit. He sort of looked banged up from the minute he walked into the football club and he's had some challenges, but in terms of leadership, that was everything that you want. The challenge now is that that's what a leader should be doing most weeks, beating his opposition and then giving a bit more on the offensive side. I think footy's gone past just having too many guys in the back half. It's a bit like the basketball analogy, and I think I've used it before. If you can't shoot, then the opposition just zone off you and it makes it difficult for the other players that are trying to make the play, like Jordan Clark and Hayden Young and also Wagner. So if he can you know, give a bit more offensively, and he did, he had the 18 touches, I think it, it helps everybody in the team and just gives them more options coming out of their back half. Yeah, that's a really good call. And it also, it changes his attitude and the way he plays the game, doesn't he? If he's, if he's determined to be more offensive, he gets on the front foot more, he gets more assertive, and that even within itself gives them more bounce out of the back half rather than him just trying to be a negative player and, and trying to spoil and negate his opponent. Yeah, I think traditionally he's been just that down defender, back shoulder type, but intercept marks are so crucial. And he started to take them. And Brennan Cox is normally the man that does it for that team, but he's been out. Joel Hamling's almost come in and played the more dower shutdown role which has allowed him to have a bit more freedom and you know he did on the very best against Tom Hawkins so we know he's been one of the best in the competition for a long time just playing with instinct and I think that's something that just needs to flow onto every team member but just get back to how you played the game when you're a kid see ball get ball take off take the game forward starts with the captain he did it and everybody else followed Joel Hamling's a great story isn't he he's played I think five games maybe in about four seasons because of that serious ankle problem. What have you made of him since he's come back into the team? He's too good not to be playing in the AFL system, whether that's at Fremantle. I think what he has done is he's showed Freo that 
he's got some work going forward, and I know I believe he's out of contract. But not only Freo, I think there'd be a few other teams that just would be looking at Joel Hamling saying, we need to play like that, who, if fully fit, will play every week. But if he can just play a role and come on at some stage throughout the season, he's going to be important. And now it begs the question, what about this week if Brennan Cox is fit? Because you can't drop Joel Hamling. I think you keep going with that. I know I've been harping on it, but I think it is the week for Brennan Cox just to have a look at him in the front half. We saw a bit of experimentation with Hayden Young going into the midfield and trying to become a little bit like Luke Hodge in that role. And he played it pretty well, particularly in the first three quarters. But Brennan Cox, I've always believed on the back of what we saw in his second season, where I think he kicked, might have been 18 goals, 14 as a second year player. Not too many Frio youngsters have done that. I'll just have a look at him in the next four weeks. So you've got enough information and data to suggest, well, what do we go forward with, with our team? And what do we chase throughout the off season? Yeah, and the, I think the other thing that adds into that, Hayes, is that Jai Amos is starting to get tired, isn't he? I think he's got uh, a single goal in maybe the last three or four games he's played. He's still having good moments in game, which shows his potential, but they are fewer and and farther between, and uh, the, the season's just getting a bit long on him. Yeah, look, it's easy to say that sometimes with players uh, in their first year. It looks like he's trying and moving pretty well, but as you get better, and this is always the challenge for great forwards. So does the competition. So does the work they put into those players. They learn a bit more about his leading patterns. They learn that he can lead very quickly. They learn he gets most of his goals probably on the ground. So rather than zoning off too early on a player like that, I think they've smartened up a little bit. But what I did love is was this was a little bit of free of old, their small forwards. And because they haven't had the key targets... A lot of their big wins last year were based on Lockie Schultz and Switkowski and Sturt was good on the weekend and Michael Frederick doing their work, getting up the ground and trying to get the team over the back using their speed. And that needs to become the cornerstone. We haven't really spoken about them too much as a collective group with the forward pressure they've applied and the scoring opportunities that have come from that. So I thought it was a pretty good sign. And Josh Corbett was the other one who is just building in the last two weeks. He probably should have kicked three goals on the weekend, and he's that hybrid type that knows where the goals are and knows how to get free. Yeah, he's mobile enough to add a bit at ground level as well. Looked like they shifted Frederick up to the wing at times, Hayes. Did that happen in your eyes, and and was that a success, do you think? Well, I didn't pick up on it as a pure wingman, but getting up the ground, you know, he shouldn't be any stranger to that because on the way back, nobody's going to beat them. And there was a few times where... You know, Geelong, they were really poor in their defence, to be honest, where they just looked at a player, realised they weren't going to get there, and they didn't give too much to actually defend. But Michael Frederick, Switkowski, you know, probably those two, Schultz particularly in the first half of the season, just been a little bit off from what we saw last year. I thought Michael Frederick could take that next step and become one of the, the really good forwards, small forwards in the competition. But, you know, they're going to need all of those players on deck next year to improve again. You mentioned Hayden Young. He did go into the middle. He did play on Dangerfield a bit and did a. Uh, he played a pretty effective role doing that. Is that something we should see more of, particularly when Heath Chapman returns to footy? Absolutely, and it's, it doesn't have to be all the time. It just it's flexibility. So so often this year we talk about Frio. If you win clearance, win contested possession, you win the game. You don't. They found it very hard to move the ball from the back half. So do you have levers in your team? to actually pull, to put somebody in that position to change the course of the game. And he didn't look out of place around the centre bounce. In fact, he added a little bit, big body. And if you can you know, work it so that you get that ball in his hands more often than not, he complements Brayshaw and also 
Hayden uh, Sarong. So I think there is a bit to like there, but I think, you know, continue to move through different positions. And if they could, you know, have one or two that can do that within their team that might be able to go, even if it's from the back half to the wing or from the front half into the midfield, maybe somebody from the front half to the back half, like a Brennan Cox. I think it just gives you some levers to pull in games when it isn't working for you. But what we did see was also Luke Jackson in the ruck and the hitouts weren't pretty. They got smashed in the hitouts, but Hit-out sometimes in the AFL can be overrated. They did really well in the clearance count on the back of that by doing their homework and all those midfielders getting to work, knowing that it wasn't going to come to them first possession. So how do we turn it over very quickly? And I thought they did that very well too. And Jackson just gives you so much more ground level too, doesn't he? He's so agile. He's great below his knees for a player of his size. So if you've got Jackson in the ruck, regardless of what happens at the hit-out, you've got an extra midfielder on the ground basically. And I think that's important in this day and age. We've seen a bit from Bailey Williams for the West Coast Eagles do that as well, that their spread from the contest is pretty good. Um, you know, there's not too many ruckmen in the competition that have absolutely dominated the clearances and the hit-outs and doing that. So, you know, Jackson's a unique type that, you know, as he continues to build, it's it's a great question of where his best uh, place in the team is going to be. I think, I think look, um, you know, Sean Darcy is terrific for everything that Luke Jackson's not. So they should complement each other. But unfortunately, both play their best footy in the ruck and that's going to be a slight conundrum for them. Yeah, no, it's an interesting one to manage going forward, isn't it? Ruckmen like to ruck. Um, they, it, it's almost in their in their nature. They're workhorses and they and they like to get the, the work into them. You've always been an advocate for Brennan Cox as a forward and you mentioned it earlier in this interview. What would you do if Brennan Cox is fit to play against Brisbane this week? Does he play back or forward? I'd put him in the forward line, to be honest, just have a look at him. I think from what we saw in his first couple of years as a forward, he looked like he was tracking pretty well. And then he was switched down back. And look, he's been really good down there. You can't dispute that. He's a great intercept player. But, you know, what do you do with Joel Hamlin? This is where you've got to select a team that complements what you've got. If you've got a position filled, like we saw from Hamlin and Pierce and Ryan, you've got this guy that they can just have a look at. Just... Just get some evidence to suggest, well, at the end of the year, what type of player or the next two years, you know, have we got that, that forward position filled potentially from a guy within our own system? And, you know, they're not going to play finals this year, so why not throw the magnets around, have a good look and make some really strong decisions at the back half of the year. And you've got to make the most of what you've got, don't you? And that's why I wonder whether Frederick is an option to play on a wing more because it does free up a space in the forward line. And Sturt, to me... There's a player in Sturt waiting to get out and he's he's lacked a bit of opportunity because of the other small forwards they've had in the team and uh, just wonder whether create an extra space and Frederick will certainly, he'll he'll disrupt a lot of team defences with his, with his speed on a wing. Oh, he'll get used and he did get used a few times but the thing with speed, if you don't get used, you do open up really big gaps. We saw that a bit with Brad Hill when he was at his best running for Fremantle. He just goes so hard and he just takes an opponent with him. And he, they tire out the opponent too, but they also open up some space for some of those other players and teammates to get involved. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good time for Longmuir. Like, the pressure's not off. I think the scrutiny's going to be there on the back of a an unexpected season. But you get a chance, four weeks, to really have a look at a few different things that may just be in the back of your mind where you've questioned whether it would work. Well, now we get a chance. And then at the end of the season... The targets that they approach from other teams should be dictated by what they see from a few of those different players. 
and also probably how hard they fight to keep a player like Liam Henry. He hasn't signed yet. I suspect there'll be interest in him from some other clubs and Fremantle has a decision to make on how hard they go and how much they spend trying to trying to keep him, don't they? What what would be your handling of Liam Henry if you were the Fremantle list managers? Yeah, work out exactly what you think he's worth and stick to it. Like I think, you know, gone are the days where you need to be dictated to by the management groups and, and the player. I think you work out, is there other players around there? And I know they came very close to Jeremy Sharp last year from Gold Coast. And then late in the piece, I think they changed their mind. They went for Jager O'Meara. There's a wingman. He hasn't been playing for Gold Coast. I think Gold Coast were really upset that he looked like he was on his way out last year and they never really got over that. So, um, you know, there is a, a player that they'll potentially look to bring into that position if he does leave. But like any player, be strong. This is what we think you're worth. And if they go over and above that and other teams can offer more, then I think sometimes you do have to let them go. What did you make of the Cats, Hayes? Are they cooked? Oh, you never write the Cats off, but I think their future doesn't look as rosy right now. I think sometimes, you know, the pull and the lure of winning a premiership keeps you there for so long. They got that, and I think teams have worked them out, and they really don't have a midfield that is, and I know it worked for them last year, and Blitzarve is a big loss, but it's not a traditional midfield where you have one, two, and three star players on any given day can share the workload. It's, it's quite unique in the sense that they've got Dangerfield and then it drops away. I know Duncan plays a bit of a different role, but I'd never write them off because they play well down at that ground, but I think the competition has caught up to them. Yeah, um, and obviously their old players getting injuries now. Blitzarve's got a significant hamstring by the looks of it. Uh, Tommy Hawkins looked like it was a calf or a hamstring, so it is catching up to them a bit. Hey, obviously Lance Franklin announced his retirement yesterday. It's effective immediately. Do you have a favourite buddy moment, and where does he sit, do you think, in the pantheon of great West Australian players? Oh, great West Aussies from when I played the game, from when he entered the competition. He's right up there, probably number one. I, I always say the two best players that I played against were Wayne Carey and also Gary Ablett Jr., um, but, geez, he's in the conversation. He's a very special talent. He, he just excited people. He had this this aura about him, this confidence, and he was quite different off the field to the person that we saw on the field, but he could do anything. He could just handle that moment in the game where you needed somebody to step up. Um, not one in particular um, stands out for me, but just a career of highlights that uh, we feel very privileged to be a part of. The fact that he kicked a thousand goals. Do do you see another player kicking a thousand goals going forward? No, I don't. The stat that really stood out for me yesterday when I was doing my research on this was he kicked forty-seven goals plus in a season, fourteen times. Duff, yeah. fourteen times. Like Fremantle haven't had a guy that's kicked that in the last since Matthew Pellich retired. It's just an enormous number. The consistency is there and look, he's kicked them from all parts of the ground. He's very, very skilled and he did it without really being a great mark. That's what stands out for me is that for a, for a guy that had all the talent, he was a real double grabber with his marks. Imagine if he had that talent and the ability to have that one touch grab that we see from other players like a Hawkins or a Matthew Pavlich type but you know, geez, he wowed the, the crowds and the fans and uh, very, very special player, Duff. 
He was. If he'd been able to take a contested mark, I think we'd be talking about the greatest player in AFL history. Paul Hazelby is one half of the run home with Hayes and Mardo. You can hear them on SEN each afternoon, weekdays. Hayes, always a pleasure to chat footy with you on the show. Thanks for joining us. No worries, Duff. Cheers, mate. Paul Hazelby, Fremantle champion. Of course, as I mentioned, one half of the run home with Hayes and Mardo. We are, as always, brought to you by Isuzu Utes. Thanks to Isuzu Utes, you can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. We'll take a break and be back with more of Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA. Live your own way in the seven-seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. We're in for a sunny top of 22 for today, showers for tomorrow, Wednesday and 19, and a cloudy top of 15 on Thursday. And don't miss Trackside with Cam Luke and Campbell Brown. That's this afternoon on SEN Track. Live your way in the powerful Isuzu D-Max. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Stevenson was pushed off the footy. Yo did brilliantly for the Eagles. And they're out. And Oscar Owens taking the mark. And he's saying, I'll slow it down and hold it up. And the Eagles are going to win. Southland won the grand final. <laughs> for the first time in 18 weeks, the Eagles finally get the monkey off the bat. Yes, the sound of 38,000 West Coast fans roaring their heads off after a five-point victory over North Melbourne at the weekend. Welcome back to Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA. Thanks to Isuzu Ute, and you can live your own way in the seven-seater Isuzu MUX. But joining me on the line, someone who I reckon is very happy to talk to me today. He's probably sitting there. Up at Northampton, he's got his West Coast beanie on. I reckon he's got a scarf. He's probably drinking something blue and gold. Josh Kennedy, AFL Life member, West Coast Eagles legend. Welcome to the show, mate. Uh, Thank you. No, very happy. Very happy this week. It was uh, was a great win. And to do it in front of, I suppose, home fans, and it's been a really tough year. Um, Yeah, it was fantastic. So what did you make of the game, Josh? What did you like about it? Oh, it was it was great. It, both teams were pretty competitive, and um, I think from West Coast side and in being able to get that thirty point lead, um, really dominated. I suppose with a lot of pressure, um, the pressure factor was you know through the roof and probably the highest it's been this year. And and as we've known, when they when they bring that pressure and able to kind of get numbers around the footy, um, they win contested ball, uh, to get it into their forward half and lock it in and sixty inside fifties, which is. Um, which is, you know, that's how West Coast want to play. You need need supply, especially with the the forwards they've got. Uh, it was great to great to see, and um, there were some individuals in terms of senior players who played really well, but the young ones as well, um, yeah, yeah, coming up to the plate and, and 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 playing consistently well. So it was, um, yeah, it was great to to get the four points. Let's talk about a couple of the senior players. You mentioned pressure. Jamie Cripps, eleven tackles, eighteen disposals, two goals. Pretty integral to what they bought, wasn't he? Yeah, definitely. You know, Cripper, you know, he's the hardest working player out there. He, his role and the way he, he runs up and down the ground, um, you know, creating support 
defence, being that outlet player, but then also getting back when it's inside 50 and to lock it in. And yeah, he's um, you know he's had his critics this year, but it was great to see him get you know 11 11 tackles. Um, is, is unbelievable. And I think as a forward line group, they had about 26 tackles in their forward half. So they were really able to lock it in, build that pressure, and, and have consistent inside 50s, which um, yeah, which you're able to kick a winning score. And I don't reckon he's had many critics. I reckon he's been absent for a fair while with a broken ankle. He's probably one of the few senior players that people aren't really questioning that much, I reckon. But um, Probably, probably uh, just Summer. Summer's <laughs> 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 Summer's lined, lined everyone up. You, 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 you haven't played <laughs> AFL football unless Summer's lined you up a couple of times. Yeah. Um, interesting, the use of Jack Darling in the first quarter. Was it the way the game fell for him or was it uh, was there a conscious effort to get him further back to getting more involved in defensive play and more involved in, in change of possessions moving down the ground. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I don't know whether it was a directive or whether, um, you know, Jack just decided to, you know, get up the ground a bit more and try and get involved a bit more rather than waiting. And I suppose sometimes over time you have minimal inside 50s, boys aren't, the, the guys aren't transitioning it that well. Um, you do feel like to, to get up the ground and having Oscar Allen there as well to stay deeper, you can you can do that when you've got two tools. So, um, you know, his marking ability up the wing um, to create that contest. And then, yeah, that, that passage of play, it was, it was probably my favourite passage of play of the day where he took that mark on the um, defensive goal line. And usually as a forward, when you cross that D50, um, the kick's, start to get a bit scary and I reckon a lot of us start shaking when we get into that D50 but he was able to get a composed kick out, um, follow it up, come through the centre and you know to sell that candy and have time and space to be able to you know kick it to Oscar who, who marked 2v1 two, two which was um fantastic play to see the two tall forwards um, uh, with a transition footy coming from the D50 so Jack played yeah, exceptionally well and it was great to see him in form and he's, he's battled in injuries this year so think that confidence will really grow for this last you know, few games of the year. And while Oscar was a 2v1, the kick was to Oscar's advantage, wasn't it? Once the ball went in, Oscar was always a good chance to mark that. So it was good ball use and, uh, and a good spot up by Jack because he, he had to shift his eyes off the line to, to spot where Oscar was. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And usually, you know, for, for a tall forward, a lot of the possessions that we gain and, and get is, you know, either a mark on a lead or in a contested mark, you get back off the mark and then you kind of assess there. You're not really out running. So uh, for Jack to be able to have that composure to one sell the dummy, which I, I don't think many tall forwards would, would ever do, um, but he um, he had the confidence to do it, to give himself, uh, himself some time and space. Um, then to assess inside 50, saw Oscar and, and the kick was beautifully weighted to over the back for, for Oscar to get his reach and, and take that mark. There's a bit to be said for getting your hands on the ball and getting you up and about, Josh. Um, you were yeah. often the primary target for West Coast attacks and you played in front of strong teams, so you, you saw your share of the ball. But it, it looked like it got Jack going a bit that first quarter. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it's something that I suppose yeah, over the course of, you know, uh, I suppose the time that I was playing and even now, like tall forwards, I mean, you, you can get pretty stale just sitting there waiting back, especially if the ball movement's not happening and um, you're not getting in, in that forward half and, and the transition of the footy's not that great. So um, having the ability to be able to get up and around the contest and, you know, whether it's on the wing, taking that long down the line or, or, or pushing further deep inside 50, just to get your hands on it, 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 it does create a bit of confidence. And sometimes that can go where you play away from your role. Um, but Jack's always had the license just purely because of, I suppose, the athlete he is and, and the work rate and the tank um, that he's, he's able to have. He's able to get back inside 50 pretty quick where, 
you know, some of us, especially myself, with you know, me running into the D50, taking a mark, there's no way I'd be getting back um, as quick as he would be. So he's always had that ability to be able to do that, come up around stoppages and be that bigger body and, and get himself into the game. And uh, on the weekend, and it was it was great to see because it flowed onto the rest of his his game and his role that he has to play as, as a tall forward. Um, and it was good to see. The question from Lisa from Allenbrook, Josh. Uh, Duff, can you please ask JK if he thinks the way Bailey Williams has been rucking and his around-the-ground effort improving each week, if Bailey could be the Eagles' number one ruckman, even if Nick Nat does get back next season, I think if Bailey puts in a huge preseason, there is no reason why he shouldn't be the number one. What do you reckon, Josh? Oh, 100%. 100%. Bailey's just grown week to week, and um, he's worked through you know, um, some frustrating moments, and he's, and he's had some, some great moments of growth this year, which is which has been fantastic to see, you know, not only as you know, a former teammate, but, you know, as a fan and, and watching. Um, he's done the number one rock, uh, ruck roll, you know, all year. Um, he was against two rucks uh, on the weekend, which, you know, can take a toll and, and, you know, obviously clearances that didn't win, but was still able to put enough pressure on around the ground. And um, his work rate's improved. He's, he's obviously got fitter. Um, he's working on his craft, you know, especially in the ruck, you know, around the ground. And we're able to see, um, I suppose, glimpses of, you know, what the future could hold, you know, I suppose, without Nick Natanui. And um, it's pretty promising knowing that you've got Bailey who's coming through and taking so much growth this year and, and being able to take that, that number one ruck role and, and handle it as well by himself. Shannon Hearn. Uh, Simo made the decision to play him on Nick Larkey. He was undersized. Yep. Um, probably athletically, uh, probably struggling to keep up, but he just his class and experience showed through, didn't it? He buffeted him, kept him grounded, kept him off balance, didn't let him jump at the ball. It was a it was a terrific performance by the former skipper. Yeah, definitely. You know, it obviously comes you know with a fair bit of wisdom and, and experience that that, that Bunga has got and playing over three hundred games, and um, he's always been able to you know play tall um, on players. His you know, ability. Uh, I suppose in contest and, and body position, you know, he's always been able to handle it. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I suppose going into the game, you know, you look at, do you put a tall on him is with Bazo, who's, you know, second year player, probably keep up with him in fitness and agility. But um, in terms of experience, you know, like he's been playing some pretty good footy, um, especially being that, that contested tall forward. So, um, it was great to see Bung, you know, take that challenge and um, be able to handle it. I don't know if I can keep a couple of goals, but, there wasn't many one-on-one contests where you'd, you'd look at the, I suppose, size um, of both players and you thought that he'd have advantage in the air. He's really good at manipulating, I suppose, that body work and being able to bring the ball to ground. And it didn't feel like other West Coast defenders had to flood back to help her either, did it? It felt like he, he had him pretty well covered in the one-on-one duels, which meant they could just um, pay attention to their own roles and, uh, and not try and surround the big bloke. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's uh, I suppose as a back six, you know, um, they're a very tight group. Um, they work together very closely, and um, it's also about having I suppose that, that confidence in each other. And when you know that you know Shannon Hearn's got a big task against him, and, and whoever whatever plays he's playing on, that there is a lot of confidence knowing that um, he will get the ball to ground and he will do the do the right thing. And um, you know, for other players um, running around, you know, you can start to predict I suppose a little bit of what you think is going to happen, and you have more confidence in that. That obviously, you know, you don't have the uncertainty and doubt, which means that you can focus on your task and your role. So Bunger has, has always brought that to the back line. We're talking to Josh Kennedy, former West Coast champion, of course. We're coming to you live from the Toolkit Depot studio. Don't forget, 
to shop winter at TKD. Josh, Elijah Hewitt, we saw another glimpse from him on the weekend, didn't we? That stoppage goal in the forward pocket. Um, probably a, a pocket that you've kicked a few goals from yourself, I reckon. It was. Uh, he's got a bit of class. He's got some real explosive power getting uh, through traffic. Yeah, well, I don't think I kicked any goals like that. There was no way I had the speed to do that. But it's been great to, I suppose, see him come through and, and, and having more chance in the midfield. Um, I suppose working on his craft around those con- congested areas, which he's, he's been great inside 450. And, and now he's doing it around the ground, you know, having I think he had 21 touches, which is... He's getting his hands on it. He's he's working well. And then um, I suppose those moments inside forward 50 when he's able to get his hands and, and take it on, um, the confidence he has to be able to get around players and, and put himself into a position to have a shot on goal. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. So And he loves giving it a bit of a celebration, which is fantastic to see for the fans. Yeah, he's got a bit about him, hasn't he? <laughs> he's uh, he certainly... Uh, it, it, I, I doubt he's one of the shyer blokes in the, in the team. Hey, it was... It was one of the better midfield efforts I felt from West Coast over the course of the year. Tim Kelly played as Tim Kelly's been playing, but he had he had better support around him. It felt they were all pretty solid, and um, and they got a pretty good overall input out of there. Yeah, definitely. You know, TK's been you know exceptional all year. You know, considering that the year's been pretty tough and. Um, there's been moments where games have blown out and, and, and the boys haven't been able to get their hands on it. But, you know, TK's been pretty consistent all year round. And um, I think Domi really had a great game, uh, really stood up and, and was pretty good around, um, I suppose, the contest and, and his ability to help with the transition. And, and, and Guffey's, you know, um, obviously the criticism he got a few weeks ago, he's really kind of stepped up to the plate since being that sub and um, working around the ground really well. And, and then you, you talk about your outer guys with with Hunt. You know he's been um, he's been fairly consistent and a great recruit. I think with his transition rebuild that the that the club's going through. It's great to have speed, isn't it? And Jaden Hunt has yeah. serious speed, and it disrupts opposition teams. I mean, we haven't seen it at West Coast since you retired. You were the speedster, and you sort of <laughs> without with the bloke was yeah. able to split opposition defenses apart. But but Jaden Jaden Hunt can do that, can't he? Oh, he does. And I think his ability in that position and uh, the way he runs, he's, he's, he's smart with his with his footy patterns. Um, being able to help out in defence and kind of play that, you know, traditional ring, wing role. But being able to press up the ground when the, the ball is transitioning forward and, and to be involved in, I suppose, a lot of opposition players always get numbers back. And it's generally that opposition winger. To be able to hold... I suppose, that distance with your opponent, being involved in um, some of the forward passages of play, especially the contest around that top of the 50, he's been able to get his, his, his hands on the footy and kick some goals, which is what you want to see. So I think he's kicked a goal the last few weeks. And, um, you know, it's all been on the back of that work rate and um, making sure that he is helping out um, defensively and helping with the transition, but then also closing that gap with his opponent uh, when, the, when the footy transitions forward. One bloke we don't talk a lot about, but he's missed a lot of footy over the last couple of seasons. He's come quietly back into the team, just doing his job nice and quietly and steadily. Tom Cole, tell us a bit about him. Oh, okay. Cole's, Cole's been an amazing teammate to play with. He, um, you know, he's one of the hardest trainers. Um, he, he really understands the game, and he has since, you know, I suppose rocking up to the club and. Um, in terms of the environment and I suppose the adaption to what the game throws at you, he's, he's always been, um, you know, really good at, at doing that. So um, he's got a lot of tools in his belt. Um, you know, I've, I've been calling him the, the, the best uh, ground ball, I suppose, um, a player at our club for a long time because he's so clean, you know, below his knees and 
um, the ability to, I suppose, one, press the game and know when to go and, and cut off, um, you know, fast play of, uh, of opposition. But his one-on-one contest is pretty good. Um, he's able to get the ball. He uses it really well. And he also has that speed to, to run off half back. So, um, yeah, it has been, and he's had a few injuries the last couple of years, but it's great to see him back out there playing. And, and he's another player, like I talk about with Bunga, where you have that confidence. With Coley, you, we, we've always had that um, confidence with him. And, and I'm sure the team this year has, has that confidence with him when he's down back, knowing that he's going to play his role and, and do his job. Yeah, he doesn't make many mistakes, does he? He's pretty solid, pretty no. competent, pretty steady and pretty reliable. Um, it was an interesting sub. Simo made it early. He went with Yo in place of Bazo. My understanding is that it was planned. But even though it changed the size and shape of the back line, Yo's big body was pretty important in some critical moments late in the game. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, Yoey coming back um, through his injuries that he's had, you know, he was only going to be playing 60 minutes and, and obviously no waffle game on the weekend. So um, do you start him and then you sub him off or do you play him as a sub? I obviously went with, with that option and um, he's very versatile playing in the midfield. He can go down back. Um, obviously, he was very undersized. So um, and in terms of West Coast backline this week, but um, okay, on and you know, obviously Bazo, there was there's probably no reason to, to sub Bazo, um, but um, as a young player, second year in, and, and you've got Yowie coming on, um, you know, you do the do the right thing for the team, and and Yowie came on, he's pretty rusty early, I reckon, um, but some of the passages of play and, and that he was involved in, and especially his contest, yeah, it was it was great to see, and and that's what you you want from Yowie, you want him to be able to create that contest, create that pressure, which he's really good at. Um, but once the ball's in his hand, he's able to really break those lines. And, um, you know, that last passage to play, uh, it was great to see him kind of win that footy, step around, get some space, and then kick it out to Oscar to kind of seal that game when, when that pressure was right up. What would you expect his progression to be this week, given the amount of footy he's missed, Josh? Would he play a full game, or would you uh, would you make him the sub again? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure. He'd probably push to maybe 75, 80 minutes, depending on how he pulls up. Um, it's a six-day break as well, which kind of comes into play a little bit. So there could be the possibility that, um, you know, he would be the sub um, and maybe come on a little bit earlier. Um, but as you start to tinker over that 60 minutes and getting towards 70, 80 minutes, you probably, you probably would start him and then sub him out at the end um, just to make it kind of flow a bit better. But... Um, but yeah, he'll he'll keep progressing. Um, yeah, there'll probably be that that seventy minute to eighty minute jump, um, plus a bit more time. I think he spent the whole last quarter on the bench, so they'll start to give him breaks between those periods, and and hopefully he can keep building and, and get some consistency in that. Um, I suppose with his body. We wouldn't uh, finish this interview without asking you about Lance Franklin, retired yesterday. One of the great key forwards of the game, as you were yourself. Um, tell us about Buddy and your memories of him. Oh mate, is uh, yeah, it was very very lucky, I suppose, with the course of my career to uh, to one be in the same uh, generation as as Bud. Um, we kind of we played 16s and 18s together in in state um, to the AFL Academy, and and got to know Bud quite well, I suppose, during those younger days, and and then he got drafted to Hawthorne and. Um, was exceptional early on. I think, you know, second, third year, he's kicking 100, 100 goals, um, won a premiership, you know, with, with Hawthorne back then and, and became the superstar, as, as we know. And um, from my end, and being able to play in that, uh, I suppose, generation with Bud, it's, it's something that, you know, when you get older and hopefully you've got some grandkids and you can sit down and go, oh, I used to play um, against Buddy Franklin. I played in the time that he did with a lot of superstars. And, 
Um, you talk about a lot of stars from back in the day, you know, the <clears throat> Jonathan Browns, Jason Dunstalls, the Gary Ablett seniors. Like he's going to be one of those players that will be remembered forever, um, talked about for a long time. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty grateful to be able to play in that generation that, that Lance Franklin did. Not only that, mate, I spoke to the coach of that under-18s team. He played down in Geelong, and I think he kicked the winner against might have been Vic Metro. He told me that you were the teacher's pet. He loved you because you were more coachable than Buddy. Buddy wouldn't run back to defend, and he'd actually taken him off the ground that day, and his assistant coach, Kevin Bryant, had to beat him playfully about the head and uh, and get him to put the match winner back on the ground. Yeah, well, I think with Bud and his talent uh, and the way he played his footy, you know, he um, he his instinct on to grab a grab the footy and be able to kick a goal, no matter what moment in the game, has always been there. So I can remember AIS AFL Academy, we had the the Gaelic footy against Ireland, and um, Jerry Wheeler was the coach. And as we were going into the, I suppose we played three rounds, um, and. The focus was we're footballers. Look, we're playing another game here, but we, we're not kicking unders. We don't go. We're not soccer. Um, we're not playing that. Any chance you get, you, you're having a shot and you're kicking it through the big sticks because we're football players. So that was the directive. We weren't allowed to kick unders. We're at the MCG um, playing the second game. Obviously, Ireland had kicked ahead and, um, yeah, Buddy decided to turn it on and he's running into a goal. Could have kicked it over, which was the, I suppose, rule because we're footballers, but ran straight into the goalie, kicked it through. I think he kicked two unders and, yeah, we ended up winning the game. So instinct like that, you know, uh, as much as you you want to listen to your coach, when you've got players like that who can win games for you, you just let them go. Exactly right. Josh Kennedy, he's an AFL Life member. He's a West Coast Eagles legend. Always welcome on the show to share his insights on the West Coast Eagles and fellow great forward Lance Franklin. Josh, thanks for joining us. Hopefully we're back yeah. next week talking about another win. Sounds good. Josh Kennedy, what do you think? You can have your say on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. You can give us a call on the open line on 13 12 55. We'll be back with more after the break. Live your own way in the seven-seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Live your own way in the seven-seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. So Broad's got half an over left here at Carey. Can he keep it going? Bolts here. Carey caught behind! Broad's finished it in magnificent style. Australia with a 2-0 advantage in this series. Their wait to win in England will last another four years at least. England square the series, 2-all, and it feels fitting. Yes, Stuart Broad gets the last wicket. Australia dismissed for 334. England victorious by 49 runs to square the series at two tests apiece. On the line now, Bryce McGain, part of the SEN family and, of course, former Australian test leggy. Bryce, welcome. What did you make of it? Well, that was the very moment where it felt like an elephant sat on my chest and I felt all that pain go through me that last (laughs) wicket. It was... uh, yeah, look, it was so close yet uh, yet so far, just uh, the 49 runs. And um, it was just an epic series. It, it really ebbed and flowed. And 
I think in the end, uh, we can see a fitting result for two really combative teams. Um, England certainly have changed the way the Test cricket gets played and Australia have found a, a solution for most of the time. And uh, it was blow for blow and uh, different styles against different styles. It was uh, it was so riveting to watch, um, so rewarding. Uh, and, you know, in the end, I think, as I said, yeah, two alls, uh, a pretty fitting end result. Did the Poms get a moral victory, you think, Bryce? Of the five tests, probably um, the three of them were knife-edge um, tests and you got the feeling that the Poms were slightly the better team in this one and, and clearly the better team when rain interrupted them at Old Trafford. Yeah, I think they, they probably got some more momentum when their backs were right against the wall, 2-0 down. Um, I think Australia played really well early on in, in sounding out the way this game gets played, I think England evolved the way that they played as well. They weren't quite as reckless as what they were in those first couple of tests. Um, and that they waited for their moments to really pounce. And, you know, we think of that you're talking about the drawn test at Old Trafford when they just piled on runs in it on day two, the session number two, scoring 175 runs in about 25 overs. It was just out of control. It was pure carnage to, to try and control what was going on. That was when they really put the foot flat to the floor. But I think by and large, they were a bit more measured in those last three tests from um, their reckless batting. I think that held them in, in good stead and probably got them a few extra runs. I don't think we can underestimate the in, that the players that they brought in improved their team as well. And I'm talking of the two Ws, Woods and Wokes, had an immediate impact on that third test, also the fourth test, and the fifth test as well, Wokes being acknowledged by Andrew McDonald, uh, who, who acknowledged that as the best player in that England series, and he had an enormous impact. So I don't think we can underestimate the inserts that they had um, to just stead, steady the tide towards uh, England being on top in those last three tests. It's an interesting point you make, because we kind of locked ourselves in, I felt, with David Warner at the top of the order. Now, I know he scored 60 in this test match, but... I mean, four times past 50 and 31 digs. Surely this is the time to draw a line in the sand and say, OK, we need to find one new opening batsman. Yeah, uh, and I've said along the way, Duff, that you know he, he's been OK. He hasn't been poor. Uh, he, 285 runs at 28.5 is a, is a huge improvement from what we saw last time when he went to England. Uh, a couple of 50s in there. Some good opening stands with Usman Kawaja, who who was a terrific batsman. The leading run scorer, four ninety six runs at, at just a tick under fifty, was, was superb and a superb return as a left hander facing the new ball in England. Uh, we, we couldn't expect anything more from from the way that he went about. I think Warner was a capable ally at the top of the order without being outstanding. He he was steady. He was reliable. And then we look to the future and go, do we need that in Australia? Um, he, his record in Australia is much better. He wants to get through to the the, uh, the Sydney test. It's a long, long way away. And there's a fair bit of cricket to be played, a World Cup in between, of course. Um, so maybe we just hold for now on on Dave Warner and where he sits at the top of the order. But uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure the selectors will want to, to fulfil his desire to go through but they've also got to do the best thing for the Australian team. And uh, maybe that is to make that change before he desires it. 
Mate, I reckon the tail's wagging the dog here. And I reckon there's a bit of this with the Australian team at the moment. This is very much a player-controlled culture at the moment. And clearly that's a swing from the, the autocratic and military style, if you like, of Justin Langer. I mean, I don't really give a flying fig when David Warner wants to retire. I want the bloke at the top of the order to be averaging better than 28 and making more than 450s in, in 31 innings. And uh, um, this is a good time to do it for me. Uh, they have players in reserve, don't they? Matt Renshaw's making runs. Cameron Bancroft had a great Sheffield Shield season. You know, yeah. Marcus Harris has always been in the wings. Why does a bloke say, this is, this is elite sport, why does one bloke say when he gets to retire? Uh, yeah, and I, I guess I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Uh, sometimes it takes a strong chairman of selectors to go, now's that time, now's that time. And we probably felt it was the time uh, at the end of the Australian summer and, and thought that uh, maybe we could make that change going into the, the Ashes beforehand. They didn't. Uh, they stuck with Dave and they stuck with the, the tried and true, I suppose, and, and trusted that. It, it's been okay but maybe that's the decision they need to do now. It's What's better for the Australian cricket team is, is, is potentially um, making that change and saying, look, we know that this is what you would like to do, but Australian cricket needs this to occur now. So let's make that change. I think it would be a good introduction uh, for a player, say like a Marcus Harris, who's had a taste before. He's gone back to Sheffield Shield cricket and improved his game. He, he's got better, um, as is Cameron Bancroft. He's, he's got better. Uh, Renshaw, he's got better. So they're, they're good options that they can go to. Renshaw's done most of his work in the middle order, though, um, and and, uh, and changed the way that he sort of played rather than being that pure opener. But he can open, of course. So they've gone back, improved. Now, I guess, with a, can we say, a softer opposition, Duff? Is that is that a better way to put it for the Australian summer? Maybe it's yeah. a good start to get them a good run on and uh, fulfil their career to the, the, the full expectation. Now, obviously, you would have seen the 05 series, which was an absolute classic in England as well, which obviously we got beaten in. But how does this series rate? There were three, well, probably four classic games in, the, in this series, weren't they? Is it one of the great Ashes series from your memory? It, it, it is my favourite one. Um, the only thing missing was uh, was Shane Warne uh, wreaking havoc, and uh, that's what really drew me into loving uh, what, what was going on in Ash's series and uh, having the upper hand with he and McGrath and knowing that they could turn the game for Australia at any stage. But in terms of the way that England are playing now, um, the brashness, the, the, the support, the, the complete change of how they're their dressing room is operating, which is around this belief. And sometimes it, it even sounds like they're a bit brainwashed with, with this over-positive outlook on what they do. But I can understand what they're endeavouring to do with this squad. And they, they believe. They believe that they are capable. And we're seeing that with Zach Crawley, who under any other regime simply wouldn't be playing. But he's just completely supported. And we've seen an amazing innings, 189 uh, in that test that was a draw in that fourth test at Old Trafford. You've seen players um, really embrace the way they go about it. Um, it, It's been absolutely compelling. I I think it is the the best Ashes series that certainly in my lifetime that I've been able to to really absorb. And uh, I haven't missed too many balls. A couple of times the eyelids got a bit heavy, I must admit, but uh, I haven't missed too many balls. And it just had me on the edge of my seat 
um, all the way through. And I'm sure that there's uh, people around the world, England, um, Australian supporters, but even uh, through the subcontinent, are, are just riveted with what was going on in this Ashes series. It, it was um, absolutely epic. <clears throat> Quick question from Dave. The ball, the changing in the ball, should there be an investigation? Yeah, I think there needs to be a question. And, and how that how that came about, it, it was clearly this vision of it. Um, if you're unsure, it's on social media. Check it out. Um, there was a ball that was 37 overs old. It was worn. The seam was depressed, and uh, it had very it had hints of riding on there, but was scratched up. The ball they got given, and Usman Khawaja mentioned it in the post match uh, on the broadcast was it felt like it was eight overs old and it had riding on both sides. It was shiny. It still had lacquer on it. So to get a new ball at 37 overs effectively um, shifted the way the game played. That ball started uh, swinging around. It started moving off the seam. And with that pronounced seam, more spin was produced as well. So it had a monumental impact uh, before the rain break. Uh, Australia losing three wickets and then... uh, it had a had a big uh, impact through the rest of the innings. So much so that in the 94th over, the ball's hitting the seam and carrying through above the keeper's head. So it really felt like it was a 60-over old ball, maybe even a bit younger than that. It was it was quite incredible. It had a big big shift in the game. It would be interesting to know from the ICC and the umpires why they chose that particular ball at that moment, because it does need to be a like for like, and that was not a like for like replacement. Thanks for joining us on the show, Bryce. Thanks for all your insights on this Ashes series. We look forward to talking to you again closer to the Australian summer. Great to catch up again. Have a ripper day. Bryce McGain on his thoughts on the fifth Ashes test. We'll take a break and be back to close up the show after the break. Live your own way in the seven-seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Live your own way in the seven-seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Welcome back to the Toolkit Depot studio. Don't forget to shop winter at TKD. And we are, as always today, of course, brought to you by Isuzu Ute. You can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max. See your Isuzu Ute dealer today. Good text coming through from uh, Luke saying, of course, the elephant in the room regarding Cameron Bancroft is that Pat Cummins hates him because of the sandpaper incident. Uh, interesting thoughts. Also, Noddy saying, did the POM snub the Australians by not having a traditional beer with us after the game? Not sure about that one, Noddy. Probably if it got a bit heated out on the ground, maybe they didn't want to have a beer with each other. Thanks to Julia Marcus over there in the Melbourne studio for his help on the show today. Of course, we'll be back with another uh, edition of Mornings with Mark Duffield on SEN WA tomorrow. Make sure you take part in the show on the temper at bed shed text line tomorrow that is on 0487 736 736 or you can give us a call on 13 12 55 thanks for participating today and we look forward to talking to you again tomorrow morning on senwa